Welcome back. This is Kelly Gregg of kellygregg.com, and this is podcast number 14 in the podcast series Health Topics. In this podcast, I will talk about fructose and soybeans. As most of you know, I am promoting the sale of my book Diet and Health, available at Amazon and, of course, on my website. These chapters happen to be part of that book, although all of the topics in in the series Health Topics are not part of the Diet and Health book. I believe this will change your mind a little about fructose and also soybean in your diet. Upon reviewing what I have written thus far in the book, I think I need to talk a little about fructose. As we know, half of sucrose is fructose, and as modern man increased the intake of sucrose, the amount of fructose also increased. The average American consumes about 50 grams of sucrose a day. That means we are also getting about 25 grams of fructose a day. This same American consumed about 28 grams of high-fructose corn syrup a day, which is about 30 more grams of fructose a day. The average consumption of fruit is about 123 grams a day. This is about 1 to 2 portions of fruit. Each portion has about 6 to 10 grams of fructose, and I'm going to say it's about 12 grams of additional fructose we get in fruit. Let's say we take in about 60 grams of fructose a day. After I had initially written this chapter, I did look up a little more to see if I was overestimating the amount of fructose. I'm not overestimating it. In fact, I am underestimating it. But I don't want you to think I'm crazy by giving you a large number, so I'm going to stick with the number I've given you. But remember, it probably is more than that. The bottom line is, this is too much fructose. High fructose corn syrup, which I abbreviate as HFCS, starts out as cornstarch. You remember starch is just a long chain of glucose molecules. This time the starch comes from corn instead of grain. We take a big vat of cornstarch. We add some water and enzymes to this big vat. And we end up with a big vat of glucose in water. This is known as corn syrup. You can buy K-roll corn syrup at the store if you want. We can then add a different enzyme to a vat of corn syrup and end up with a big vat of fructose syrup. We then mix the fructose and glucose together till we get the sweetness we want. Fructose is slightly sweeter than glucose. This was initially done on a large scale in the production of soda pop. It ended up the best taste was when we used 55% fructose and 45% glucose as the sweetener. Hence, that's where the name high fructose corn syrup came from. When we use it in food, it is usually 42% fructose. To avoid confusion, I still call that high fructose corn syrup, but it's just not quite as much fructose. Remember, we gladly broke apart the glucose and fructose and dissolved it in water, so your gut wouldn't have to do it. Unfortunately, that also increased the rapidity of which this was absorbed. 
and also increase the insulin spike, which you know by now leads to insulin resistance. Fructose was first made commercially in Japan in about 1970, right around that time. Prior to that time, the average intake of high fructose corn syrup was zero. In 2017, the per capita consumption of high fructose corn syrup was 40 pounds. You can see why this may be one of the main components of our current obesity diabetes epidemic, in addition to the other problems we are suffering, such as gout, autoimmune disease, dementia, and increased cancer. Okay, we remember that I believe it is the rapid and frequent elevations of insulin and blood glucose that leads to insulin resistance. High fructose corn syrup is almost like IV glucose. It's already hydrated, and unlike sucrose, it's already digested into free glucose and free fructose. The glucose almost always goes directly into the blood, and up goes the level of glucose and insulin more rapidly than if we had to go through the trouble of digesting sucrose. At that time, I skipped over the part about fructose. This is taken up by the liver and converted into glycogen. We take in far more than we need to fill up the liver glycogen, and a lot of the fructose is converted into glucose for general usage. That glucose is dumped into the blood and further contributes to the elevated glucose level and subsequent insulin secretion. But fructose also induces triglyceride production, as well as inducing the production of fatty acids in the liver. We now know that the fructose induces uric acid production also. I also believe what may be occurring is that the rapid absorption of fructose may overwhelm the ability of the liver to utilize the fructose on the first pass-through. The blood circulates and the liver will get more chances later to use up that fructose. But in the meantime, we have more free fructose than we historically had circulating around the body. It ends up that fructose forms ages, remember those are the advanced glycated end products, much more rapidly than the other sugars. You'll recall that these ages may be hard to get rid of, rapidly exposing the liver to fructose for tens of thousands of times, and you probably are significantly increasing your age generation regardless of your glucose level. This is high fructose corn syrup. I am not talking about eating a lot of fruit. Fruit contains fiber, and we already discussed the effect of fiber in slowing down the absorption of both glucose and fructose. I am talking about the near-IV fructose levels accompanying high-fructose corn syrup. That is why I am advising you to bring your high-fructose corn syrup as close as you can to zero. Before 1970 it was zero, so this is not asking something impossible. If we look at the first paragraph, cutting out high-fructose corn syrup will cut in half the amount of fructose intake. At this point, I will mention the metabolic syndrome and go into a little more biochemistry. This is a condition characterized by insulin resistance, obesity, diabetes, prediabetes, high serum triglycerides, anovulation, and hypertension. 
I have discussed at length what I consider to be the basis for a metabolic syndrome, that being insulin resistance. We also understand insulin resistance to be driven by repeated rapid and elevated levels secondary to rapid absorption of glucose. I feel I have underemphasized the role of fructose in this condition. As you know, fructose does not directly affect insulin release. It also may not induce a satiety response or stimulate leptin secretion, leading to an aberration in the historical diet, which was to eat when you were hungry and stop eating when you were not hungry. Fructose differs from glucose metabolism in its initial step, that being the metabolism of fructose to fructose-1-phosphate by the enzyme fructokinase, which is rapid and has no negative feedback. As you can then into it, this uses up phosphate in the cell. This stimulates the enzyme that degrades ATP to AMP, AMP is adenosine monophosphate, to replenish the phosphate, which eventually results in an increase in uric acid production in the cell, which is subsequently released in the blood. It ends up that uric acid stimulates the production of fat in the liver. When you look at the fate of fructose in the liver, little is incorporated into fatty acids. It may be that the association of fructose to fatty acid production may mainly be driven as a result of its uric acid production. You probably already know the incidence of is dramatically rising in the U.S., as is the level of uric acid. This is a lot of info, but the role of uric acid in the development of the metabolic syndrome seems to be evolving as perhaps the main driver of this condition. I may have to incorporate more information on uric acid in the future, as it may turn out to be the driver of insulin resistance. Regardless, my advice will stay the same. High fructose corn syrup to zero and decreased sucrose. Both will result in decreased fructose absorption. Food engineer, if all you do after reading this book is to cut out high fructose corn syrup and maintain the 12 hours of not eating between your last and first meal, I have put you well ahead of everyone else as far as maintaining health. This will reduce your ages and up your autophagy a little. All you must do is continue this for about 50 years. Fruit itself is a little more complicated as to what my recommendation would be. I started out asking what happened in our diet in the last 100 years compared to the previous 5,000 that may have contributed to our current situation. First, what was happening long ago? I am certain that man has been eating fruit since the beginning. I'm not sure it's the same fruit we eat today. Man has been cross-beating plants since the beginning before anyone knew about fertilization or chromosomes. Capitalism accelerated this cross-breeding as bigger fruit meant more money. Till now we are at the point that apples, grapes, oranges, bananas, or even berries bear little resemblance to the original fruit. It is only in the last hundred years or so that we can eat fresh food from all over the world daily. I doubt if Native Americans ate bananas three or four hundred years ago, 
Our Filipinos ate apples, at least the kind we're used to eating today. For most of history, the local diet did not include a multitude of choices as to eating fruit. Also, for most of history, fruit was eaten in season. You ate a lot for a couple months, then not so much or perhaps even none. Back to the diets of non-Western civilizations. Inuits may have eaten almost no fruit. African societies probably ate some, but not nearly as much as we eat now. Societies in the Pacific Islands had a much more limited choice and only ate much when in season, the same as everyone else. Your body is designed that it can eat a great deal of fruit, but only over a limited amount of time, about four to six weeks. When the fruit was ripe, most civilizations could not afford to waste these sweet calories. Now things have changed. I must disagree with the advice of nutritionist. I do not think fruit is bad for you, but I do not think eating fruit daily is necessary for good health. Neither did anyone else until the government began advising us to eat less fat, more carbs, and more fruit. Food Engineer A little fruit is not bad for you. Fruit has been used as a sweetener from the beginning. Eating a lot a few weeks a year has been the rule for thousands of years. I do not think you need to eat fruit every day. Use your common sense. Eat whole fruit with the fiber. Avoid fruit juices. Make desserts with fruit. Remember that avocado is a fruit. Remember that banana is a dessert. If you are counting carbs, you may only need to count about 70% of the fruit sugars. Most fruits do contain fiber, which delays and may prevent some of the absorption completely and save it for the bacteria in your gut. Modern grapes appear to have an excess of the sugar-to-fiber ratio, and don't eat them every day. I have never seen, heard of, or read about anyone in the United States with scurvy. I do not worry much about the fructose in fruit. If you cut out high-fructose corn syrup and limit sucrose, you would have to eat a boatload of fruit to overburden your liver. Remember, the fructose is tied up in fiber and does not give you the instant glucose spike and hence may not be much of a contributor to insulin resistance. By the way, if you are going to eat fruit, eat naturally ripened fruit and avoid ethylene oxide ripened fruit. I have not mentioned alcohol, but wine has been around since the beginning. That does not mean it's good for you to eat a lot of grapes. Drinking wine is fine. Getting drunk is not. The best definition of giving drunk is that after you wake up, you cannot remember what happened the night before. Distilled drinks have not been around since the beginning. There is no doubt that there is an association between distilled drink and certain cancers. I don't recall ever seeing alcoholic hepatitis in someone who only drank wine. Wait a minute. Upon reflection, I did, but it was not a common event. I believe most of the DUIs are from drinking too much distilled alcohol, or perhaps beer, but probably not too much wine. This is not to say it could not happen, and there are several examples in the Bible of people drinking too much. They just did not have a car. There may be some health benefits from drinking in moderation, 
even distilled drinks. These same benefits apply to wine, but without the particular harmful effects of distilled alcohol. Beer has also been made since almost the beginning. Beer is mainly made from grain, and the Nile River Valley was a source of a lot of beer. Beer is a preserved food and was used as a calorie source when necessary. Consider beer in the same manner you consider grain. Modern beer probably does increase the rapidity of the absorption of glucose derived from grain, just like modern bread. Now a little added new information. As you must know by now, the gut biome has been emerging as a prominent factor in our digestion and subsequent metabolic disease. Your gut biome is your friend. We can screw it up in many ways. One way is to eat too much fructose. Excessive consumption of fructose can be toxic to the liver. I believe I told you earlier how the rapid absorption of the already broken down sucrose into glucose and fructose can overwhelm the liver. The excess fructose is used to create fat. This leads to many problems, one of which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Your gut biome tries to protect the liver by actually breaking down the fructose and digesting it before it can be absorbed. Of course, it's even more complicated. In mice, at least, a high-fructose diet leads to deterioration of the intestinal wall barrier, something we have referred to as leaky gut. This led to the absorption of bacterial toxins and chronic inflammation. Remember I talked to you about defects in the gut barrier may allow larger proteins to be absorbed, which leads to various autoimmune diseases. We can also assume that high fructose causing epigenic changes to the gut bacteria, which may be leading to other problems. I don't know how I can emphasize this more. Get your high fructose corn syrup ingestion down to zero. Avoid a lot of fruit juices. This is processed food. We have been misled in believing fruit juice is good for you, and perhaps you should drink it every day. Do not do that. Like desserts, you can occasionally eat some as part of the joy of eating, but do not drink it three times a day. This must be the tenth time I've said this also. Decrease sucrose, not necessarily to zero. Get high fructose corn syrup to zero. Decrease artificial sweeteners, hopefully to close to zero. And eat whole fruit. I do believe man was created to be able to eat a high fructose level for four to six weeks, that being the whole fruit, and then hardly any most of the rest of the time. This only makes sense, as through most of history, fruit was not available throughout the year. It is the continuous ingestion of fructose over years that leads to these deleterious conditions. It appears that the advice on diet from the government and nutritionists have harmed us more than helped us. Like high-fructose corn syrup, soy deserves its own post-engineering chapter. Soybeans came from China and appear to have been grown about 3,000 years ago. 
Its initial use was for crop rotation, as before anyone knew about nitrogen fixing in the soil, man figured out that using soybean as a part of the crop rotation improved production in the other crops. Initially, it may have been used as a forage for animals, but it was not eaten as food till about 2200 years ago, when fermentation techniques were developed. Man knew all about fermentation when it came to alcoholic beverages and bread from the beginning, but it had not been used much on other food processing. Although when I think about it, probably it had. I just don't know about it. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with kumchi, the fermentation of cabbage. The Chinese developed an extensive civilization and had written records, and that's why we know about them. About 2,000 to 2,200 years ago, the Chinese developed a puree of cooked soybeans that could be precipitated with calcium sulfate to make a pale curd. This is tofu or bean curd. In Asia, much of the soybean consumption is in this form. Now a brief aside. Soybean, along with legumes and grains, contain anti-nutrients. This means they contain compounds that bind to minerals, preventing their absorption. Generally, these anti-nutrients are in three categories. Phytic acid found in plant seeds impairs the absorption of iron, zinc, and calcium. In plants, this serves as a storage form for phosphorus. It appears phytic acid acts as a plant deterrent to prevent animals from eating all of their seeds and hence preventing reproduction of the plant. Eating a few may be okay, but if you eat all of this type of seed, the animal will eventually have problems. Over human history, man figured out we need to do something so we could get the benefits of nutrition without the drawbacks. Soaking cereals and legumes will reduce the phytate content. Man figured this out thousands of years ago. Sprouting seeds, legumes, and grains have long been used as a method to increase both the nutritional value and absorption of the content of foods. Fermentation forms organic acids, which can break down phytates and other anti-nutrients. We use this in making beer and sourdough bread. Trypsin is an enzyme involved in the breakdown of proteins as a part of digestion in the gut. The pancreas secretes trypsinogen, an inactive form of trypsin, into the gut where it is activated to trypsin. Plant seeds containing trypsin inhibitors that bind to the sites that trypsin usually occupies prevents enzymatic digestion of protein. Eating a diet with a lot of trypsin inhibitors eventually results in delayed growth as well as digestive and metabolic diseases. Again, the plant does not want you to eat its seeds, so we have to get around this anti-nutria. And again, eating a few seeds is not that big of a deal. Eating a lot of seeds, plant doesn't like that. One of the main ways to enhance nutrient availability is to cook food. This degrades the antitrypsin protein and allows your gut to digest the food.
Although phytates are not removed by cooking, the methods by which you reduce phytates also works on trypsin inhibitors. Lectins are proteins that have an affinity for binding to sugar-containing compounds. These can be digested, but high amounts can be harmful to the gut biome as well as activate the immune system. Some individuals are allergic to some particular plant lectins. Lectins are removed the same way the other anti-nutrients are removed. Cooking, soaking, fermentation, and sprouting. I believe that if the gut biome is not functioning well, some lectins may leak past the gut barrier and be similar enough to some other proteins in the human body that an immune response occurs to these lectins and normal tissue may be affected. Everybody is different and must use their common sense. If you eat food and you don't feel very well, you usually will stop eating that food. The popularity of eliminating some lectins in your food is probably rooted in the poor quality of the modern gut biome, which is not protecting us as well as it was historically. Vegetable alkaloids, or nitrogen compounds, contained in all plants and serve as a mechanism by which plants protect their seeds. We are only going to talk about potatoes. The potato contains toxic alkaloids, primarily in the skin. People and animals can have severe reactions to eating raw potatoes. Cooking does not reduce alkaloids significantly in potatoes, although it does make the starch more available. Deep frying has almost no effect except at high temperatures over 410 degrees Fahrenheit. Despite their presence, most of the time they do not cause a lot of problems, except in certain people. However, eating a lot can build up levels of alkaloids in your body and damage your health. As you may imagine, the modern diet does contain a lot of potato. If you have a normal gut biome and gut wall, a reasonable amount of potato will not cause problems. If you have a bad biome and bad gut wall, then a bunch of potato and you are looking at trouble. Sweet potatoes do not have this problem. Remember, they are yams. Back to soybean. Soybean was successfully converted into a protein paste by precipitation about 2,000 years ago. Before that time, virtually none was eaten by humans. Over the years, this paste, called tofu, has been used as a source of protein. Soybean contains a significant amount of the anti-nutrients mentioned previously, except for alkaloids. These are not removed totally during the process to convert soybean into protein paste. I have already discussed the use of soybean oil and protein in our food supply and the use of soybean foliage for meat animals. You remember this results in an increased ratio of omega-6 fatty acids to omega-3 fatty acids. This ratio is far higher than it was historically. We believe this may contribute to higher activity in the immune system. The incidence of autoimmune disease has increased over the last 50 years and continues to go up. 
I suppose that some of this increase is due to our ability to better diagnose autoimmune disease and our discovery of more disease that may have a basis in the immune system. But even those diseases that we traditionally have known to be autoimmune in origin, and for which we were already pretty good at diagnosing, have been increasing. Over the last 50 years, the use of soybean meal for us as feed has increased by 900%. Soybean consumption in the U.S. is relatively low compared to other countries. Soybean oil consumption in the U.S. has increased 1,000% in the last 100 years. In the history of man, soybean was barely consumed. Recently, there has been a push to eat non-meat products in place of real meat. These products are using soybean as the protein base. It is very highly processed, both in the extraction of the protein and the necessary additions of numerous chemicals, in order to make these beans taste like beef. This is the exact opposite of our goals to reduce the processing of our food and examine our past diets for some guidance. Instead, we are told to eat chemicals our gut biome has never seen before and told this is healthier for you. Finally, let's discuss phytoestrogens. These are compounds that bind to estrogen receptors. This has various effects depending on the baseline estrogen level, as if the phytoestrogen is binding to the receptor, estrogen cannot. Your body is extraordinarily complex, and abnormal binding to estrogen receptors affects DNA, induction of various enzyme receptors, and epigenic changes to the DNA. Phytoestrogens are likely associated with a decrease in sperm counts. Sperm counts from America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand have dropped by more than 50% during the last 40 years. This is probably due to several factors, but I believe diet, obesity, and diabetes is a factor. Certainly, with the increase in soy intake, again, soy is rich in phytoestrogens, this can be a likely cause. Reduced sperm counts is just one sign of the feminization of males. Estrogen affects the behavior and psychology of males, and one can reasonably argue that the American male behavior has become more feminized over the last 50 years. In the transgender world, it is easy to observe that if you give a woman a lot of testosterone, they begin acting more like males. Similarly, if you give a man a lot of estrogen, they begin acting more like females. We are giving males more estrogenic substances in their diet. The effect of giving estrogenic substances to females can also change historical norms, such as the earlier age of menarche and the incidence of breast cancer. The incidence of both male and female breast cancer has increased over the last 40 years. I think diet is a factor. I can't prove that the simultaneous increase of soybean is the reason, but I believe it may be one of the major factors. Soy also affects the gut biome, and I believe may be a part of the diet changes over the last 50 years that contribute to the rising incidence of autoimmune disease. Finally, for the food engineer, 
Please do not use soybean-based infant formula. I believe this is a bad idea on many levels. I understand that in rare instances it cannot be avoided, and soy formula is better than none, but if at all possible, avoid this. As you can see, I am not a big fan of soybean. Now, eating soy after fermentation is probably not a large problem, but eating soybean oil, soybean protein, or soybean fed to animals is a problem. A little bit is okay for most people, as your body can protect you from many of your crazy ideas about what you eat and drink, but limit your intake to as little as possible. I have said this before in the book, but I am continuously impressed by how little we regard the accomplishments made by man thousands of years ago. We now think they were ignorant savages, and we're the only ones that know what we're doing. 5,000 years ago, they figured out how to crossbreed plants. They figured out what was good for you and what wasn't, and how to prepare it. Someone figured out how to cut down a tree. Man figured out how to split them into planks. And somebody figured out how to make a nail and build a house. Nowadays, if someone discovers something in China, I can read about it next week and incorporate it into my thinking the week after. A few thousand years ago, it probably took a while to hear about that guy cutting down a tree or crossbreeding a plant. I am saying this so people will not disregard the importance of trial and error. If over a thousand years man prepared a plant in a certain right way, there was a reason they did that. I will put the fructose and soybean chapters in a little ebook so that people can read them if they want. I will also combine them in a podcast on the Health Topics website.